Hello and welcome to another episode of Car Park Convos by Surfers for Climate, because change really does start with a conversation. And this conversation was a very special one for me. It's with my good pals at Ocean Impact Organisation, Tim Silverwood and Nick Shirelli. If you haven't heard of Ocean Impact Organisation, they're a tremendous initiative that are trying to raise awareness of ocean impact businesses and the truly transformative effect they can have if we see more of them flourish in our economy. I go into all of the nuts and bolts of what Tim and Nick have been up to these past couple of years, as well as discussing their very successful Pitchfest competitions, which have run two years in a row now. And we talk a little bit about their accelerator program, which is now receiving entries. So it's a very simple process. If you want to get involved, you've got an idea and you want to see it grow, well then get in touch with Ocean Impact Organisation. Enjoy. Well, it's with great pleasure that I introduce to the Car Park Convos podcast today a couple of legends that I've had the good pleasure of spending a bit of time with over the years, um, Nick Shirelli and Tim Silverwood from Ocean Impact Organisation. Welcome to the podcast, fellas. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having us, mate. No worries. No worries. Now, we're, this is my first attempt at a three-person interview using this fancy technology that I have, so apologies to the listener if it comes across a little weird, but we're going to do our best with what we've got here. And I guess for the audience at Surface for Climate, you know, these are people focused on trying to, you know, make an impact in their lives in terms of our oceans and in terms of some of the political kind of policies that are being pushed in Australia around offshore oil and gas and, you know, climate policy generally. Um, to get them to know you a little bit better, I mean, is the question kind of comes down like, is Ocean Impact Org in conservation? Is it in business? What's the kind of mission for the un- uninitiated? You want to take that one, Nick? Why not? Well, we, we're both, Josh. So we're conservation through through business, essentially. Um, you know, the, the old premise, I suppose, that um, philanthropy and, and people working in, you know, the typical conservation sense comes along and mops up after business is a paradigm that, that we're saying doesn't work. Um, so our, our whole reason for being is to try and drive people to establish and grow businesses that can return a financial return via having a positive impact through ocean conservation and improving ocean health. Yeah, and that's exactly, you know, to the core of why I was so motivated to to jump into bed, so to speak, with with Nick when he came into to my sphere. I'd done the grassroots activism and advocacy, and I, I strongly believe in the role of civil society in tackling the big challenges that we face. But after 10 years spent in that sector, I just couldn't believe how it felt like we were only touching around the edges of the actual problem because we live in a capitalist society and the the big perpetrators of the problems are going to continue to keep perpetrating whilst they're making money out of it. So ultimately, um, the success of OIO will be judged in many years down the track on how much capital we've been able to shift across into these impact-driven, purpose-led businesses 
who are regenerating and transforming the way we do things. And when that works, and we'll be obviously playing our role in the ocean sphere, but we needed many other people doing it in other regenerative spheres. When we get that right, it's very easy to imagine a future where we do have a beautiful balance between business and the impact that has on planet, people, communities, and cultures. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I totally understand that tension between the two, the conservation and the business side of things and that big overarching, you know, capitalist world that we do live in. I mean, that transition for you, Tim, I mean, was it a difficult realisation? Because I know a lot of people listening to the podcast here, are, you know, maybe some of them come from the business world, but a few, a lot of them do come from kind of being active in conservation and wanting to protect things and that bit that Nick referred to, the mopping up after the business has come and done the damage, you know, like some of that is what, um, you know, I'd say more people are trying to stop things from happening these days as well. But, you know, was it difficult for you in your journey as a, as a person that was kind of leading a conservation effort in such a big way? It was initially and um, even the whole, this whole project, you know, I've often sort of flagged it as being a bit of a thesis. Like I love the idea that business can be good for the planet and good for cultures, but you know, I haven't seen it proven yet. <laughs> We've got mm. a long way to go to actually make this um, actually work, right? And so OIO, mm. again, it's going to play our part in that. But I think the really interesting side of it is from all the Take Three for the Sea and the other grassroots activism is that people increasingly were looking at that, well, what next? What next? Like mm. I want to be a conscious consumer. I want to reduce my personal impact. I want to have a sphere in, uh, have an impact in the workplace or in my community. So it's already really opening up and has been for many years for people to engage in that next level association with the kind of future that they want. But this is just a level up again because we're getting into a really exciting landscape around impact investment and shifting large amount of capital, not just personal behaviour. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I guess that journey, I mean, as you said, it's a thesis and you're awaiting the results and we're all on the edge of our seats here. We're going to be on our, the edge of our seats for probably 10 years, um, I reckon, but we'll see how it all plays out. But, you know, coming down to you, Nick, with that kind of idea and that that catalyst for Ocean Impact Organisation, I know that this, I know a little bit of the story already, but what was the inspiration for you and your personal journey to to embark on this adventure or this kind of is it an adventure? Like how, how does it feel so far <laughs> and what was the inspiration? Look, it's a lot of hard work and, um, you know, like anything that you do from a passion point of view, you, you know, it really becomes your baby. So, you know, at times there's a level of anxiety around it that is more than anything I've worked in before. Um, but you sort of use that a little bit. Um, it's your it's your adrenaline. It, it's you know you only have that because you're so invested in the mission and what we're trying to do. So you know the in terms of where the idea came from. Um, so my background is I'm an accountant, um, a reluctant one that I've always <laughs> and essentially I've always um, been looking for a way to not be an accountant but use the accounting toolkit and, um, and background and so forth and. You know, anyway, for the first uh, 20 years of my career, it was not very clear to me how I could have been involved in something that I was passionate about, where I could have impact, where I could be mentally stimulated um, and and, and um, make enough money uh, to have a family, you know. Mm. So, um, yeah, first 20 years I bounced from one end of the spectrum to the other. I got qualified as an accountant, then I went and became a dive, dive master. 
uh, money, no money, mental stimulation, no mental stimulation. Anyway, fast forward to about five years ago and um, I just finished a corporate role that was a startup and uh, I'd been there for nine years. Got to understand that I love the startup space. I love the ability to have and work in organisations where you can, everyone in the organisation has the highest level of context for what you're trying to do. It's really motivating and empowering. Um, and so I knew that that's where I wanted to stick. So I looked at, at where I could be in that startup space and have impact. And then, you know, we quickly realised that, hey, you know what, like the whole world has moved to uh, startup and innovation ecosystems that support a cause or an industry uh, or, you know, vertical alignment, but nothing existed for the ocean. And, you know, not long after that I met Tim and it was a, um, you know, a real accidental meeting where I realised that what he brought to the idea was exactly what I needed, even though I didn't have that in mind before meeting him. And, and things just went from there. We, we, we asked ourselves the question, is there something that we're missing? Why doesn't this ecosystem for early stage innovation in the ocean exist? And we couldn't find anyone that told us why it shouldn't exist. So we quite naively went about building it. Mm. And, and on that note, you know, it's a, it's a really an interesting journey. And I, I think that lesson for everyone, um, you know, Tim, Tim's story is the one that most environmentalists have, you know, they come from conservation, they did all this and that. And, you know, it's kind of like a journey in another direction, which when people think of environmental action, they kind of assume most of us are going that way. But I think with your story, Nick, it's always really cool to hear that one, because in my role now as uh, at Surface for Climate, you know, I get a lot of people asking if they can get involved, if they can volunteer and, you know, how can they help? And, you know, the question I ask them is, well, what are you good? What do you do? Like, what's your thing that you already do? And they, they don't think it matters. They, they often think that they can't kind of leverage their experience to put that to work on the environmental issue. And I think you're a classic example of someone who figured it out to how do you take the skills you have and connect them to passion and it takes time to figure out, but I'm really, you know, stoked to get that story of yours out there because I think it's a really powerful one for people to realize. Um, but on this, um, you know, the naive attempt to create a thing that didn't exist and you checked around to see if it should, should exist or why shouldn't it. And, um, uh, pun intended, you found a blue ocean. Um, how does Australia fare as a nation when it comes to these blue ocean kind of all this ocean impact space? Like, I know there were some things happening overseas, but how, how do we go now since you guys have kicked off and how was it before? Well, yeah, three or four years ago, there was, there was nothing that existed in Australia before we came along, at least from an early stage point of view. There's, you know, Australia's, it, it's funny, we've got probably one of the best countries in the world in terms of marine science and um, or marine organisations and conservation uh, organisations as well. And we, we're blessed with um, just about every type of different marine ecosystem and habitat there is. And on the other side of the coin, I think we have one of the lowest rates of commercialisation of marine science in the world and, mm. and nothing, pulling, nothing in terms of an innovation ecosystem trying to um, develop businesses and, and invest 
in, in the ocean. So when we were looking at it early on, there were some things that were around overseas and there were a couple of organisations in particular where impact was at the forefront of what they were doing. And then there were also a lot of things that were around that were, you know, being pushed by certain industries. So, you know, for instance, ports and shipping um, might have an innovation ecosystem and, and it'll be, you know, you don't have to scratch too far to see that where they talk about impact, it's very much just a, a green or a blue washing exercise to further the profits of that particular industry, which is why it's very important for us that we are very deliberately um, industry agnostic because we never want to find ourselves in a situation where we realise that a particular industry is part of the problem, but we're backed by that industry or we're tied to that industry. So, you know, we're very much about creating awareness across the whole range of ocean issues and, and challenges and letting the market dictate what we work with. And, and when I say market, uh, there's two sides to that. What do founders want to work on? What are they passionate about? And what are what do investors want to put their money in? Yeah, that's super interesting. And on that front, like I know that um, Ocean Impact Org has taken the initiative in Australia to to launch the Pitch Fest, and you've had a couple of years now um, with plenty of ideas kind of coming across your desk. And I guess um, I've you know a few people who might listen to this have seen the winners, and you know, like I I believe it was. Um, Sea Forest was the last one that won, and you know, spectacular organisation that's um got a got a close relationship with us. Um, but what about some of the other businesses that have come across your desk? Like, what about some of the ones out there that have really excited you? Like, can you speak to a few of those where you were just a little bit kind of mind blown, or and also just so for the listener to understand how how broad that agnostic approach to these ideas can be? Like, what what have you seen that that was quite interesting? Yeah, I can probably jump into this one so the first thing I'd say is you know jump on our socials or on our website where we've got some blog features that actually list out the finalists for the various programs that we've run year on year and you'll get that taste for just how diverse the solutions to ocean challenges can be so fundamentally when we're out there calling for applications to PitchFest or our ideation program or the current one that we're spruiking, which is our first um, Ocean Impact Accelerator program, is how can you illustrate you're going to positively improve the health of the ocean either by being a resource from the ocean, using the ocean for a resource, maybe looking at an existing industry and improving the outcomes for ocean health, or for the ocean, can you actually show that by your business, your solution scaling, you can actually then improve the health of the ocean? So if you just look at, like you said, some of those pitch fest finalists and winners, you mentioned Seaforest, um, they clearly come sort of from the ocean. They're looking at a seaweed solution and endemic seaweed variety that grows around the southern fringes of Australia called Asparagopsis which, yes, it improves the health of the ocean by teasing out nutrients and leaving a, a healthier uh, ecosystem in its, in its place, but it's a resource that seaweed, when fed to livestock, can have the remarkable ability to reduce methane emissions by 98%. Whereas if you look at the winner of Pitchfest uh, 2020, it was Planet Protector Packaging, 
They were clearly an ocean health solution for the ocean. They found a way of using an existing waste material. It was waste from the wool industry, and they could create a packaging solution, just this lining of wool inside an existing recycled and recyclable cardboard box that would replace polystyrene. So their mission was very much driven by that desire to eliminate polystyrene, which, as we know, is a very toxic and highly polluting material found in oceans and coastlines and environments the world over. Um, but gosh, there's so many inspirational startups out there. We had another Victorian startup this year established by two surfers, Julia and Geordie Kay, called Great Wrap. They were tackling, again, plastic pollution, but by finding a method to create cling film, which is a highly utilised material in homes, in kitchens, in businesses, that's pallet wrapping in industries, trying to find a way to create a cling wrap that would be fully compostable and marine biodegradable. And they're off to a fantastic start. They were second runner-up uh, in Pitchfest 2021. I really love what's happening in the aquaculture industry. So we've had projects like Urchinomics in 2020 who are looking to commercialise sea urchin as a highly desirable food source for more communities around the world because in doing so, you're going to motivate fishers and farmers to actually take urchins out of the environment, which are decimating the great kelp forests and provide new ways of protein for the masses because we're going to need lots of creative ways to feed 9 billion people in the future. And if we look at the ocean as a solution to feeding the population but do it in a way that doesn't cause ocean harm, then there is immense opportunities and exciting opportunities out there. What are some of the ones that strike you, Nick, as being really inspirational? Oh, look, you know, I think you've covered off some of the, the winners and, and, the, and the finalists there, Tim, but I actually take a lot of inspiration out of some of the entrants that, um, you know, don't see the light of day through Pitchfest. So we've received almost 500 applications over the first two years and, you know, let's remember what we're here to do. This is still very much, or it is and always will be, a numbers game. You know, we want as many people working on solutions as possible. We want more founders working on things. We want them to fail quickly if they're going to fail so that they can, you know, find their feet in their next venture. I mean, that's how building an ecosystem works. So some of the really early stage and, and um, really early stage ideas that we saw from, you know, really passionate individuals has been pretty mind-blowing. Um, you know, sure, not late stage enough, not enough traction yet for us to show up as a finalist, but the breadth of things people are working on has been absolutely astounding. Um, what One area in particular that really surprised me was the number of small-scale renewable um, ocean energy projects that we've seen. Uh, that completely caught me unawares. Um, you know, I think the idea when you think renewable energy and in particular ocean renewable energy, you think about, you know, long, long, long R&D times, long, long, huge capital expenditure. And, and look, in a lot of cases, that's mostly um, the case. But, you know, like startups and, and, and all types of startups everywhere, um, you know, we are seeing with the advent of, of cheaper technology and, and, and platforms for just about everything, this idea that, that anyone can get going in any sector or in any idea should they have the gumption. So it is, it is really exciting to see how many more um, early stage entries we can get. 
It's a breathtaking number of entries, I've got to say, and just something really important to pick up on before I dive into that. But um, that's your first and last warning, Tim Silverwood, about um, taking over the hosting role in a podcast. If people want to um, <laughs> see you host, they can tune into your podcast, mate. All right. So you just, that's your first and last warning. I'll let you get away with it this time. Um, but yeah, all jokes aside, I think that that number is really amazing. Like, you know, you're saying there's been over 502 years and have all of those. Um, well, there's two questions. Have they been, just a short answer, like have they been mostly Australian companies that have thrown their hat in the ring or has it been a blend of international and Australian? What's that kind of breakdown look like? Good question. Uh, I think it's around over the two years combined, it would probably be close to 50-50. Okay. okay. 45 cool. countries in total if we look at the, the diversity yeah, of right. countries that have been applying to the program so far. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And I guess like coming like zooming out on it all for a second to seeing that breadth and depth of ideas being passed your way does it give you like a really deep sense of hope that things are going to be all right because to me it makes me pretty excited yeah for sure it's hard it's hard not to and particularly the inspirational moments when we're running a campaign and the applications are coming through in real time we'll have team slack channels where we're just blowing up with excitement at these technologies and solutions that we didn't even know existed another one that was a finalist in pitchfest 2021 was a norwegian company called panovo and they've just commissioned some research from a swedish institute looking at the problem of microplastics and nanoplastics in the ocean and found an extraordinarily high percentage is actually coming from paint, from marine infrastructure and coastal developments. So this company has actually got a system where when you're maintaining paint from, uh, like I said, onshore and some offshore uh, infrastructure, you can scour the paint away in order to reapply new paint using a vacuum system. So here I am, I've been working in the uh, plastic space for 15 years, I had no idea that the quantity of micro and nanoplastic uh, in the ocean was actually hugely relatable to paint from infrastructure because paint is essentially plastic. So it's just crazy to see that there is people out there that are using the science and knowledge to then go, you know what, we can hack out a way to address this problem and commercialise it and obviously make a return. So it's just, it's incredibly inspiring. That's um quite the revelation. That paint, you know, it makes perfect sense when you let it sink in. Um, yeah, mind blowing amount of stuff. And I guess it probably says more about my worldview. But I like that that kind of idea because it seems like something you could regulate. Like it seems like a regulation that could be put in place about how people, um, you know, how businesses do the upkeep on their yeah exactly and service that infrastructure so now that's pretty exciting what about you nick you know you you see the same stuff like is there a, a lot of hope that wells inside you when you when you see the quality and the quantity of the the ideas coming your way yeah absolutely and that's sort of what i was getting at with um being excited by you know some of the earlier stuff because at this point you know it's all good and well for us to showcase a handful of great things that are out there but what we need is many 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 more people and startups working in this space. So, yeah, completely. Um, you know, as we see, and, and, you know, we're seeing a hell of a lot more people supporting our journey generally. We're seeing over the last couple of years, you know, everything we've we've done is to 
you know, showcase what's out there with a view to growing the numbers and then growing the investment side or the prospective and interested investor side so that we can get those passionate people with ideas, the funding they need. And, you know, we create a cycle by by driving both sides of, of that platform, if you like. Um, one of the, you know, fundamental things about innovation is that ideas follow money. And so as we grow that investor interest via, you know, the number of individuals that are following us and coming up with ideas and number of applications to pitch fest and accelerator programs, we grow the pool of interested investors. And when, it, when mainstream investors start looking at this space, not through, you know, a philanthropy mindset or because they love the ocean, but because they consider that there's, um, you know, some really good ideas that can generate a return, that's when we'll really start to see a tipping point of impact. And with that impact and with this kind of type of investor or, you know, philanthropic versus, you know, corporate kind of investment, you know, in all that, you know, there is this big question that comes to my mind about what is it, you know, we've got an election coming up, so it is a thing on our minds, is that, you know, what, what role can government play in, in, you know, getting the policy settings right to, you know, help grow this kind of network and grow the number of companies coming your way? Is there anything that comes to to mind for the organisation or for you two gentlemen um, in terms of a policy wish list, as it, as it were? I might, I might let you take this one, Tim. I know we have somewhat differing views to this question. So Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll frame the landscape for, for Nick to sort of chime in. So I guess where Nick's sort of coming from initially there is that it, this theoretically we're going to get out there, we're going to undertake this mission with or without government support. Obviously, we would love to live in a society where we could look towards our federal government, um, both in the two-party, uh, two-horse race, um, and bank on them, but we can't. We can't do that. That's That's been evident in the behaviour that we've seen over the last couple of decades. So, yes, of course, we would love to see federal policies around ocean investment. Um, ironically, every time the coalition gets dragged off to be scrutinised by their global um, counterparts at the UN or um, Al Gore's you know, recent, uh, John Kerry's recent um, climate summit, you know, they always bring up the ocean. Oh, look at us. Or when the Great Barrier Reef is going to be listed as um, under threat by UNESCO, oh, we're going to invest in the oceans. And so these big declarations get made, $100 million there or $400 million to the Great Barrier Reef Foundation. But I'm sure everyone listening who works in ocean conservation is cynical as to where those dollars actually go and are they being invested where they could have the greatest return. So we would love to see more policy around how this supporting ocean innovation could um, really put Australia on the map as a global leader because, as Nick was saying earlier, we've got the culture and the institutions, the organisations who've been around for a really long time supporting the science, the knowledge, and understanding what the solutions need to be, but there's just been no action on that commercialisation and really seeing Australia leverage off this as a new industry, a new era for the country to really be on that global stage. So we'd love to see it, but we're not going to wait around to see it. So I don't know if you want to hit the nail on the head with any more cynicism on your side there, Mr Nick. <laughs> <laughs> well, I Go, Nick. Well, 
you know, I, I'm very pessimistic about um, government policy. And in fact, that's, you know, that's essentially why we're sitting here. If we had effective environmental policy and leadership and um, uh, over a reasonable time frame in Australia, we wouldn't need to be doing what we're doing. We're, we're essentially, you know, look at Australia. Australia is, even though we've been um, driving with the handbrake on, so to speak, we're still actually a renewable and a solar a solar powerhouse. Imagine what we could be if there'd been effective policy in place rather than driving with the handbrake on. And we're taking the same view. You know, we're not waiting for government. Um, we're going to build things to a point where you know investors and founders get this to a point where we hope that government will have no choice but to get on board. Um, you know, we need the power of the private sector of business and individuals to to make the change that they seek and then typically we'll see the government, one of the big two in power at the time, will try to pile on in because at that point it's a politically safe thing for them to do. And, um, yeah, I think that, fr that frames where I am on it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I can hear uh, a certain um, exasperated tone, uh, Nick, with, when it comes to speaking about the, you know, where government fits in all of this. And yeah, it's a really interesting idea in Australia that um, your your kind of creation is through the, you know, driving with the handbrake on, and and you know, you wouldn't need to exist if government was doing its job. So, yeah, really interesting back and forth there, and um, great to hear that there's some diversity of opinions in the house as well. It's really cool. It's a very healthy thing in a democracy. Um, you know, we're getting towards that really sweet spot with the podcast. Um, enough for people to get excited, not too much for them to go. Oh, damn! I've got to go and um, pick up the kids now and press pause. Um, so to finish things off, I'll leave the last word with you two gents. Like what's on the agenda for Ocean Impact Org? Like you've had a couple of pitch fests. What are the most exciting things that people can stay tuned to in the, you know, the coming, say, months? Yeah, well, definitely at the moment, um, depending upon when you're, you're listening to this, the 10th of March was the deadline for applications to our first flagship Ocean Impact Accelerator program. And this is the huge one. This is in many ways what we've been building OIO towards over the last two years publicly, but three and a half years behind closed doors. So this is where you can receive investment to come into a dedicated six-month program. We've partnered with one of Australia's leading climate tech and renewable energy startup accelerators called Energy Lab. And we're also using the, the fund structure attached to Energy Lab called Impact Ventures. So currently raising a $2.5 million startup fund and obviously seeking applications from the best startups, not just in Australia, but across South Asia, from Singapore, all the way across the Pacific Rim to the West Coast of the States. And this will be huge because not only will we be running that program, which will culminate towards the latter part of the year, we'll also be running our Pitch Fest program and ideation programs. So this is a full calendar of events this year for OIO. Um, and a really exciting time for us. So if you want to chime in there, Nick, with anything else attached to that? Yeah, and no, I suppose it's just to reiterate, um, Tim, that uh, this is another step in our journey and on our trajectory to, you know, ultimately push dollars into this space. So Pitchfest and um, the last couple of years has created a lot of awareness and, and put us on the map and 
with, with startups and with investors. And now here's the, the first opportunity to, you know, invest in those startups. So the $2.5 million fund that Tim referred to is essentially to provide a, around $100,000 to up to 20 startups over two years. So we'll run it as an annual program. It's a, a seven-month program where we, we take um, up to 10 startups per, per year through an intensive uh, first three months. Uh, then there's another three months where they go away and take some of their learnings and develop, and then they come back for a final uh, investment uh, module, if you like, and and they're possibly looking for more funding at that stage. So it's exciting for us to be here now, um, and you know we're taking applications up until the from startups up until the tenth of March. Well, that's very bloody exciting, and I thank you too for jumping on the podcast today. And to anyone listening uh, who wants to learn more about this great opportunity, we'll get your ideas in order and uh, start your um, electric motors, I guess, and. Good luck with it, guys. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, mate. Cheers.